If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Understanding that what we're doing is playing status games, making that unconscious reality conscious is, is potentially huge because I hope it makes us more empathetic. And it pulls us out of that story. The story that the brain likes to tell is a toxic story in many ways because it's a story of heroes and villains. Like me and my people, we're the heroes. Those people over there are the villains. They're evil. They need to be destroyed. That's how the brain coaxes you and seduces you into playing status mm. games. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I reckon we'd all love to tell each other that we don't care about status, that we aren't the type to drive the fancy car, that we publish posts on our Instagram feed for community reasons or whatever, and that we compete against ourselves, not others. But my guest today will tell you you're kidding yourself. Will Storr is the author of The Status Game. He's a prominent UK journalist and writer, and his thesis is that everyone's always playing a status game, that there's no better way to understand the human condition outside of it being a game, which is a big, big call. In fact, he opens the book with, everyone alive is playing a game whose hidden rules are built into us and that silently directs our thoughts, beliefs and actions. This game is inside us. It is us. So status is the original human currency, he says. Prestige, renown, respect and admiration, they're all sought after because it gave our ancestors better access to mates, you know, safety and the resources of the planet. Now the modern era is here, but the lions are no longer chasing us. However, our desire for status is possibly stronger than ever for a bunch of reasons that we will get to. I have to say, I bristled at this whole idea initially. Is it really our only or at least primary motivating drive, this status business? Does it define and distort our behaviours and desires that much? What about connecting and the, the pursuit of love? Aren't they also primary motivating desires? Well, Will has an answer to this, which, yes, we'll get to as well. He also has an answer to why the humiliated male, so think Putin, Trump, and gun masochists, why these men play such a role in our existential precariousness right now. I was keen to talk to Will because his range is, is so broad and generous. His previous books cover an almost full, glorious spread of odd, counterintuitive and confronting human behaviours. 
In his book from a few years back, The Heretics, he shows how intelligent people and sometimes the most intelligent people can come to believe crazy conspiracies. For this book, he went undercover on holiday with Holocaust denier David Irving. He has another book, Selfie, about how the self-esteem movement actually sent us way, way off track. But today we talk through how we can better understand the world and each other and all of our weirdnesses if we see it all as a bunch of games that we sign up for and through which we set out to climb up the proverbial ladder. Okay, let's meet Will Storr. Will Storr, it's wonderful to have you here on Wild. I've followed your writing for quite some time, so it's a pleasure to meet, albeit virtually. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Sarah. It's great to meet you. Look, you've written a whole bunch of books. Many of them have won awards. There was one on heretics, why smart people believe crazy things. More recently, there was one called Selfie, and I think a lot of people would know this one. It it did particularly well in, in Australia for reasons which people can work out for themselves. But it looks at selfie culture and how the self-esteem movement really proliferated at a certain time and then what it did to us as a culture. And I'm just interested before we move on to your more recent book in what you ultimately learned in that latter book, in in Selfie. The the big thing I took away from it was really the the power of culture, how, how important culture is to sort of defining who we are and what we think. You, you know, before I went into that book, you kind of think of culture as you know, what newspapers do you read? What music do you like? That, that's what culture is. But it's actually the kind of, it's, it's almost like the operating system for your brain. Like, like it's the thing that tells you how the world works and who you are and, and who you ought to be and what you ought to look like. So it's, so it's a sort of massively powerful thing. And it, and it really changes the way that you kind of see the world and see human behavior because you realize, I, I think the default expectation is that we're all we all decide for ourselves who we are. Like we have this free decision, but actually we're all, we're, we're all running on these very powerful rails of culture. Like we're nowhere near as free as we think we are in terms of choosing who we are, choosing who we want to be and that kind of thing. So I think that was the the big thing for me was, was the, just the massive power of culture to influence us. What did selfie culture do though? All of this self-esteem talk, the self-obsession stuff, like what did it do to us as a culture? You know, one of the things that people are always trying to do is is to kind of compete for status, even if unconsciously. And what social media does is it is it, is it, it creates this kind of whole new universe for us to kind of compete for status, whether that's status about how we look or, you know, the, the, the traditional ways we might think of status or kind of, you know, we can compete for status with virtue, with how good we are and how political we are and how we're changing the world. We can compete for status by being dominant and pushing other people around. And, and so all of those things, social media... It was the creation of a whole new realm of reality in which humans can compete for status. And so that, that, that even further kind of encourages this kind of, uh, I guess, that kind of me-focused individualism that we, we were already pretty good at in the West. That brings us to your latest book, Status Games. And you, the thesis that you put forward is that everything about being human can be understood as a status game. So why don't you, you've sort of touched on it a little bit, but why, why don't you flesh out what you mean by status and what you mean by game. I know that there's a bit of an evolutionary basis to it. And from what you've said, yeah. it's also sped up more recently with the, the added fuel to the flames that, that is the internet. Yeah. So I don't think it's true to say that everything, everything is is explained by status. But what, what I'm arguing in the book is that a hell of a lot is, and that we don't see it often. We're often unconscious of it because, you know, because it's because of how the brain works. And so, so, so the reason I talk about status games is that, is that, that humans are tribal. 
right? You know, we, we, you know, the, the way that humans see to control reality and get what we want is we form into groups or tribes and the groups then solve problems. And those groups might be political parties or activist groups or football teams or whatever. <laughs> and that's what a status game is, really. That's why it's a game. It's like, you know, humans come together and, and in any cooperative group, even if you're a communist, there's a status hierarchy. There's people at the top, there's people at the bottom. Life is better for people at the top and people want to move as hard to the, to the top as they can mm. because, that's, because that's where life is better. So that's the kind of basic DNA. That's the basic kind of structure of human existence. And so, 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 so that's what I wanted to write a book about was to, to kind of try and explain human life in a new way, really, which is in the form that we're just constantly playing these status games. And when you say status, you don't just mean rich and famous. There's sort of other notions of status, right? Yeah. So, so, so humans, you know, one of, one of the things that makes us so incredible is we have these amazing imaginations and, and, and humans compete for status using anything, like literally anything. I mean, if you play Monopoly, you're competing for status with fake money and plastic you know, houses and hotels, but it still matters. And people always argue <laughs> when they play Monopoly with their family members because it's a status game. So we can use anything to to mean status. It, it, the, the group that we're in decides what means status. Like if you're a Buddhist, how little money you have, you know, is, is, is a status game. But if you're on Wall Street, how much money you have is a status game. But the main ways that humans compete for status, you know, first one is dominance. And we have that in common with most animals. We push each other around and force people to treat us as if we're high status. And we've been doing that for millions of years, since before we were even human. But humans also have these other two ways of competing for status, with reputation. And there are two main ways we can earn a good reputation. The first way is with virtue, by being a morally good person, a courageous person, by being somebody that knows the moral rules of our groups, defends the moral rules of our groups. So if you can think about, you know, the Pope or, or Michelle Obama, the, these people are famous primarily because they're seen as, as figures of virtue. They're like virtue celebrities. Or, or, and the other way is by being highly competent, by being successful. So, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Serena Williams, these are all people who are very high status because of their you know, incredibly high levels of competence. So, you know, dominance, virtue and success are the, are, are the main ways that humans play for status. Yeah, it's interesting. When you think about it that way, what we can then see is a lot of people think, oh, look, I don't play status games. Like, I'm, I'm not interested in a fancy car or wearing the latest, you know, mm. Gucci loafers or something. You know, I, I wear everything secondhand. I'm actually quoting myself here because I'm aware that, you know, look, I'm not caught up in all of this stuff. But of course, virtue yeah. signaling is also a way to do it. So there's these kind of weird paradoxes that happen up to a certain point of wealth and a certain level of crass wealth, I suppose, you know, these things really matter, you know, signaling dominance in terms of, you know, how much you can buy. But then there's also a shift occurs, right? When you've earned a certain amount of money, you then want to sort of signal that you have a certain nobility. You can let go of that wealth. <laughs> so I think it's a really interesting ju juncture to discuss status, right? It, it then lends a little bit more support to to your theory that so much of what we do is in fact, yeah, seeking a pat on the back, you know, yeah. acknowledgement and respect. Well, I mean, there are a couple of things. The first thing is that in every group, in every game, status is defined in different ways. So, so as, as you rightly point out, in, in the wellness space, it's low status to have a very expensive four-wheel drive car and a, and a designer outfit. 
right? So you signal your status by not doing that stuff in in the, in, in kind of wellness spaces. So it, each each group has its own rules. Whereas if you if you, yeah if you go to you know a, like a classic sort of English private school, you know the mums and dads at the school gates, it's probably high status to have the designer gear and the and the flashy Japanese four wheel drive. So, yeah, so each group plays its own games and has its own signals of ideas of what high status and low status is. And it's perfectly possible for a wellness person to look to look down their nose at somebody with a flashy car and, a, and an expensive bag, you know, and it's the looking down the nose that's the tell because I think yeah. I'm better than you because I don't fall for that rubbish that you're falling for, you know, but, mm. but that, that in itself is a, is a status game. The other thing, I, and I think evolutionarily speaking, because I, I, th- I think people often pull away from this idea, you know, they, they don't like it. And I think they don't like it because the, the, there's an implication that when I'm saying that people are obsessed with status i'm saying everybody wants to be rich everybody wants to be famous and that that isn't true at all it's just that you know the kind of technical definition of status is the feeling of being of value to other people like that's what we want we want other people to look at us and think yeah that's a valuable person so that's a separate thing from belongingness so we all want to feel loved and belonging and, and connected like that's equally important it's no less or more important but once we've connected once we feel like we belong and we once we feel loved we want to feel of value like nobody wants to feel that they're likable but useless. That's not what we want as humans. We want to be likable but admired. You know, like this is a really competent person. This is a really brave, virtuous person. Like we don't, even in the parenting space, we don't just want to be mums and dads. We want to be good mums and good dads. So it's, it's a very basic, fundamental you know, part of the human condition. And there's lots of bad stuff about it, but there's also lots of amazing stuff about it. The, the fact that humans compete to be seen as who's the more virtuous like is amazing. <laughs> like that. That's a really good thing. In the final wash, it can work out very well. Hmm. I mean, you say that it's yeah. you know it's more important that status is more important to us than money. I mean, that's quite significant. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's true. Like our brains haven't evolved. Uh, money hasn't been around long enough for our brains to evolve a craving for money. You know, the, the reasons that people want money. I mean, well. Firstly, we should say we all want enough money to be able to survive and to provide for our families. That's just kind of a separate thing. You know, that's a survival, you know, basic survival instinct. But once we've got enough money to survive and put a roof over our heads and feed our kids, it's just about, you know, money is a way of signaling status. You know, that, that's why people want it. And this is borne out in, there's lots of studies which show that if you offer people a, a higher status job title versus a kind of modest bump in wages, most people will go for the higher status job title. They, 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 you know, they prefer to be seen as higher value reputationally than actually have the cash in the bank. So, so yeah. yeah we do, and again, I think that that's a good thing. You know, you know, and also it kind of bears that when you look around the world. I mean, if it was money that people wanted and it was money that made people happy, then there would be this kind of hierarchy of happiness with the rich people who would all be like blissfully happy and the poor people would just be permanently miserable. And that's, of course, that's not what we see, you know. We know There's those studies, the bell extremely miserable rich people and plenty of extremely happy poor people. So, 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 so yeah, it's, you know, it's really what we're looking out for. Lots of people, of course, do measure their status with money. And they're, they're going to, they probably are going to be the wealthy ones because that's, because that's going to be their priority in life. But there's loads of us that don't. I'm not a particularly money oriented person. You know, my, I measure my status in my books, in my writing, but I know lots of writers who are much more interested in, in money than me. And as a result, they're wealthier than me because they're much more kind of tuned into what can I yeah. do to maximize this, that and the other. I can see now 
why there's certain aspects of the way that we're we're different to each other and it can dictate a lot of our behavior just in that that one example i'm a bit the same i don't value money but i've always wondered why that's the case if so many other people do but i'm still playing the status game my status is almost the virtue signaling that comes from saying i don't need money you know and i give 80% of my income yeah. away and i do other things the evolutionary imperative of all this or the basis of it is such that I read in your book that scientists are saying that we have these status detecting mechanisms within us that can work you know, almost immediately. We can detect either lower or higher raised status in others with all these very, very finely tuned yeah, mechanisms. Can you, can you talk to that a, a little? Yeah, so, so neuroscientists describe this thing, they call it the status detection system, and it's this subconscious... What, what, it's, what it says in a detection system that's constantly measuring our level of status sort of versus other people's. And so the tricky thing about status is that, you know, in a sense, it doesn't exist. Like you can't get your status and look at it. Like, 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 like how, how we measure our status is we see how other people are treating us because that's how we tell how high status or, or otherwise that we are. And, and that's how somebody like Elon Musk could, could sort of get in a lift and be treated like absolute scum by everybody in that lift and feel terrible, you know, because, you know, that, that, that's kind of how that works. And, and it never switches off. So in the, in the book, I talk about these studies that show that when you, if you pour everybody glasses of orange juice, but one person gets sort of slightly less orange juice than everybody else, that person's going to come really preoccupied and upset by the orange juice <laughs> because the orange juice is not about how much drink I get. It's about, what does that say about my kind of measure of status? When I lived in Australia, I remember the first week I was there going into a post office and um, asking the, the guy behind the counter for a book of first class stamps. And, and he looked at me and he said, we don't have the class system in this country, sir. That was very funny, <laughs> very witty. Um, but, but, but then uh, my wife and I, or my then girlfriend and I went to Bondi Beach for the first time. And I was, you know, like a mid thirties, you know, white guy with my top off. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, there's definitely a class system on this beach. And I'm definitely in the lower part of it. You know, like everywhere we're going, we're playing these status games. And, and certainly, you know, Bondi Beach is his own status game and the kind of younger and more beautiful oh, yeah. you are in, on that beach, the higher you, you, you higher your status is. And if you're, if you're in the bottom 50%, as I certainly was, you certainly feel it. Mm-hmm. As a 49-year-old who has lived there for the last four years up until just recently, <laughs> I know that status game very, very well. I think one of the other status detecting <laughs> mechanisms is interrupting. When we see people masterfully interrupting that is something that we immediately detect as a high status kind of signifier and I'm interested in that one because on a previous podcast we spoke to somebody who was speaking about interrupting as something that men do far far more than women women find it very hard to interrupt a conversation and men will interrupt women's discussions far more than the other way around so yeah it made me think you know this status game thing, it's its not fair, is it? Like, I, I think it's particularly gendered. Well, it, it, it depends on what game you're playing. So there will be certain status games which are biased towards men, and there is, but there will be certain status games which are biased towards women. It depends who are the dominant people in that particular group. So, so, so like in my world, in the, in, in the book's world, non-fiction tends to be quite male-dominated, but fiction is very female-dominated, and it's certainly kind of, you know, well-known in the British, British books industry that if you're a bloke and you want to get a book deal like a fiction deal at the moment it's, very, it's much more difficult for you than if you if you if you were to be a woman so it just all depends like you know if yes if, if you're trying to succeed in a as a man in a female space it's going to be more difficult for you and if you're 
a woman trying to succeed in the male space is, is going to be more likely more difficult for you. So, so yeah, I think it all, yeah, a lot of it is, is, is kind of context dependent. Yeah. But I, I think one of the gender, there's a couple of things about gender, you know, one is that I think, you know, men are obviously certainly more violent than women, a lot more violent than women, and perhaps they're more aggressive too. And some of that comes across in the way they kind of play their status games. But sure, yeah, like, but as I, say, I think it's kind of context dependent. Yeah, that was Marianne Seagart. She she wrote a book about this, and uh, yeah, it it it's sort of goes through all the different studies on all of this. But look, mm. just jumping ahead here, and, and I, I want to come back to that gender stuff in a moment, but. Some of our biggest disasters in history have been the result of status games that have gone wrong. And use the example in your book of the Nazi party in Germany to illustrate this and indeed explain something that has confounded many people over the decades, how such a sophisticated, well-educated society like Germany in, in the late 30s could possibly turn so deranged. And you put that down to, to status. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, so so I, I think one of the kind of kind of key ideas that I'm kind of pursuing in the book is that we all know that we've got two kind of parts of the brain. There's the conscious part and there's the unconscious part, the subconscious part. And so the subconscious part is to a great extent a game player. We, we constantly play these status games, but that's not how we consciously experience our lives. We consciously experience our lives as kind of a, as more like a story, and, and it's a story of justice and you know. So if somebody you know morality and and great virtuous goals. And if somebody, you know, what tends to happen if, if we perceive that somebody has unfairly taken our status away, then we, then what the brain does is it tells this often extremely toxic story about that person or that group of people to the level that, you know, you, you could even justify attacking and killing those people. I, I kind of found that in when I in the chapter about incel misogynist incel people in the, you know mm. but but so you find that in individual minds so so, so so I tell the story of that of the incel Elliot Rogers who ended up sort of killing a bunch of people and you know it's quite extraordinary he he you know was serially rejected by the young women of his of his age and ended up telling this extremely well, it's about as misogynistic as you can possibly imagine. Story about how women were the everything was the fault of women because they chose to procreate with these violent, aggressive jock types, and women needed to be controlled and stopped and all this stuff. And then he ended up so killing a whole bunch of them. And so, you know, you, you read the rantings of Elliot Rogers and you think, well, this is a completely insane, crazy person. This is somebody that, needs, that should be locked up, you know, and you're right. <laughs> but then when you start looking at the history of uh, the Second World War, you see exactly that, exactly that happening but on the, on the level of the nation. So one of the things about Elliot Rogers and people like that is that they, they're very narcissistic. The men who end up killing people, and it is usually men, are very narcissistic. So, so, so they, are, they, they feel entitled automatically to high status. And then when they don't get it, again and again and again and again, it drives them, you know, they start telling a story about, this is unfair, I'm, you know, I'm going it, to, it's unjust, and I'm going to right this wrong with violence. And so that's that's what happens, and that's exactly what happened during the Second World War. You know, p people say, "Oh, how could this?" As you said, how could this very cultured, very high status country, and you know, descending into this absolute murder? And it, and it's not how could they? It's, it's that's the reason they did. I mean, you know, the, the Germany were the most advanced, successful country in Europe. You know, they, they were just dominated everybody in their technology, in their industry, in their culture, and then they lost the First World War, uh, and so they were and humiliated. Just like Elliot Rogers. Yeah, and, and and the story that they told was the fault of the Jews. 
And, you know, so, they, so just like Elliot Rogers, they felt humiliated and humiliated and humiliated and humiliated. And then along comes this guy, Adolf Hitler, who, who starts kind of dehumiliating them, you know, starts rolling back all these humiliations that we were sort of pressing on them. And they, of course, they loved him. And so that's how Hitler rose to such huge power. And that's how millions of Germans turned a blind eye to the Holocaust is because they felt humiliated. Hitler was the, the, the saviour for that humiliation and they blamed the Jews for their humiliation. Yeah, and so their status had been degraded and Hitler you know, promised raising their status once again. Status mattered that much. You write in your book that status game's most lethal player is the humiliated male and and. You know, yeah. you were referring to Rogers in that case. I mean, it's, I guess, in many ways, it explains Trump and Putin. They're both men who have been humiliated and really at a personal level rather than as a nation. I think they take it very personally. So their status was downgraded and then they become violent and take on this sort of let's make them pay attitude. And as you mentioned just a moment ago, you know, the bulk of gun massacres are at the hands of, of men and, and from what you say, humiliated men. And the correlation, I think, is pretty massive. Tell me if I've got this right, Will, but rejection, I think social rejection is implicated in 87% of gun spree killings. I mean, that's a massive yeah. correlation. Yeah. yeah, it's massive. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think it's pretty inarguable. It's, you know, especially at that age, when we hit sort of 12, 13, 14, a very specific part of our brain starts to grow. And it's the part of the brain that's sensitive to social status. It's, it's really the kind of the brain that deals with status games, social status games. And that's why at that, that age, children stop being influenced quite as much by their parents. And, 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 and it switches to their, you know, what we call their peer group. And of course, the peer group is a status game. You know, we join peer groups and we, and we start to get extremely concerned at that age about our, our relative status. And that's why teenagers have this kind of really weird combination of risk-taking, but also being extremely sensitive and getting very easily embarrassed. Like the risk taking is, especially uh, among men, it's, you know, you're, you're competing for status. You can drive the car the fastest and the, and the, you know, in the most dangerous fashion. You can take the most drugs. But also they, they get extremely embarrassed very easily for the same reason. They're, they're just highly sensitive to Criticism status. And, and, and so, yeah. yeah. You quote a proverb in the book, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. You know, that's... <laughs> That is a hectic proverb, that one. And, of course, here, you know, in Australia and the UK, we don't have it, we don't have the same issue, but, of course, we're witnessing this happening in the US. The gun violence is just, mm. you know, really out of control. And so you, we've really got to look at it as, a, you know, these are men, you know, and we're really talking the main, men who man-child children who have not been embraced by the village for a whole bunch of reasons and they're humiliated. And whether they're narcissistic or not, but as you say, often it's narcissism at the heart of this. They're particularly vulnerable to violence when they become humiliated. But, you know, I see a whole re heap of repercussions and I suppose women come back into the equation here again. There's been a bunch of studies that have come out just re recently showing that, again, particularly in the US, women are sort of, you know, outperforming men at schools and universities. They're now starting to earn more than their partners in a lot of cases. And this particular study, I think, looked at how the more that women earn and the more, so where you see that women are earning more than men and the bigger gap between the female income and the, and the male income in the household, you see more depression amongst the men, more violence amongst the men, more divorces, and a huge uptick in Viagra use. So, these men are getting are feeling humiliated and emasculated, right? Now, 
this is playing out in all kinds of ways. You'd be aware of these life expectancy statistics in the US where I think it's dropped for eight years in a row now. I mean, unheard of. And for the first couple of years, it was the diseases of despair. So predominantly white men dying from opioid use, suicide and alcohol. And in the last couple of years, it's been mostly attributable to children and teens dying from gun deaths. Again, a humiliated male problem. As we see women earn more, we're going to see more humiliated, vulnerable men. I mean, are we going to see a whole lot more violence? Does this is this something that you are concerned about or, or seeing play out and well, discussed in academic circles? Yeah, well, we need to be careful. So, 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 so like you, you know, you're right that, that that there's been lots of studies that have shown that women at school, for example, girls at school are outperforming boys. But that's an example, I think, of where we see that who has the privilege in each status game depends on who forms a status game. So, so when there was a study that came out recently that showed that when blind marking, gender blind marking, is instituted, the boys do better and actually start outperforming the girls a little bit. And so the implication there is that really? because yeah, because a lot of those teachers are predominantly women, that there's a bias towards girls in those schools. So that's that's an example of how, you know, you've got to be very careful mm. about, you know, like whoever whoever dominates the group tends to privilege people who are a bit like them. It does traditionally switch, well, though, well, when we get to the workforce, right? Because, you know, those same studies have been done where women apply for a job or ask for a pay rise. And where there's a gender-blind scenario, women will often get the advancement, will often get a decent fee for their artwork or their book advance. And so, yeah, it plays out there. But what we're seeing is that women are starting to, in in some cases, earn more than their male partner. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I say it all depends on on who's who's making the decisions. We should always be uh, alert to bias because it because by, you know xenophobia is part of the human condition, unfortunately. And we and 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 people will always privilege people who are like them. So if there's lots of women in charge, women who do well. If there's lots of men are in charge, men who do well. And and as we're kind of as the feminist project is uh, yeah, having victory after victory after victory. All right, I think you know we, we're going to sort of meet parity. But I, I think the Trump thing, you know, and the and, and over here in the, in the UK, the Brexit thing, I think. You know, we've got to be careful too, because you know you're right that, that that a lot of that is because 
it's really the white working class, male and female, lots of women vote for Trump and lots of women vote for Brexit too, you know, feel diminished by our culture. They, they feel degraded by our culture. But the important thing to, to solve this problem is to, is to stop them feeling humiliated and degraded and stop yeah. disparaging them and diminishing them and, and, and start sort of caring about them. Because until we start caring about poor white people, they're going to get more and more humiliated, feel more and more excluded and feel more and more angry. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Oh, yeah. I agree with you. The class piece has been missing. And I think so much of what you're saying around status is tied up in class. You know, there's so much that's going on there. But look, the health implications as well are pretty massive too, aren't they? I'm really keen for you to flesh this part of it all out because I think that ramifications of an understanding of how status affects health and longevity and a bunch of other things is is super interesting to bear in mind as we go forward into a world where, you know, the health markers are shifting and we need to understand what's going on a hell of a lot better. Yeah, so so one of the things that sort of blew my mind when I was doing my research was 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 the, there's a series of studies called the White Horse Studies that were done in the UK where they 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 looked at the kind of mortality rates of people. So the White Horse is the civil service; it's a huge, you know, organisation in, in in the UK. It's a stu- you know, it's, 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 it's the people who turn the government policy into action. So it's a massive, or, you know, organisation, and the people at the top did you know better in life health wise than the people at the bottom and you might you might say well that's not surprising because the people at the top are rich and can afford you know macrobiotic food and personal trainers and all that stuff but it wasn't the case like the people even the people at the bottom of the civil service hierarchy could perfectly well you know live and 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 feed themselves and actually you know one person down from the person at the very top would do slightly worse in their health outcomes than the person at the very top so that's also a very privileged wealthy person but that is what they found and and again i think it's this status detection system you know the 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 low that we feel we are in the pecking order the more the kind of brain kind of picks it up and kind of prepares our body for you know trouble and disaster and strife by kind of raising inflammation is one of the big ways and sort of living with chronic inflammation is a you know is is a very unhealthy thing to do it raises your chances of getting cancer alzheimer's all kinds of you know heart disease all kinds of you know terrible conditions so 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 yeah for our even for our physical health where where you know how valued we feel by the world around us by the games we're playing is kind of hugely important but the other you know massive one of course is you know mental health we're living through kind of epidemic of um, mental health especially in young people in the west and especially young women and, you know, I do think a lot of that is the status games that we're playing. You know, we, we evolved to play these games in small groups. Like when we evolved, it wasn't that hard to feel valued, you know, because because we weren't competing against many people. But today, you know, you feel like you compete against the whole world, especially when you're on social media. So, yeah, I, I do think that it's playing a part in the in, in the problems that we're seeing with, in, in, in mental health at the moment. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of paradoxes as well, isn't there, in all of this? Because I sort of think about the fact that, you know, we think that rich and people, rich and famous people are going to be inherently happy, but that doesn't always play out that way because obviously there's other status stuff going on there. One of the other things, of course, is also we don't tend to like high status people, but then sometimes we do, right? We <laughs> we we develop these obsessions with different celebrities. And I I find your thoughts on all of this really interesting as well. Yeah, so so we have a really weirdly ambiguous relationship with with high status people. Like our default is that we hate them because status is relative, and that the highest status somebody else is, the worse we're made to feel, you know, in comparison. So we don't like that, you know. But there's an exception, and the exception tends to be that the high status people within the games that we're playing, those are the ones that we admire, and the brain sort of switches because what the brain essentially is saying is that that's who I want to be. 
And in order to become that person, I need to learn from them. And in order to learn from them, I need to like them and be around them. So, 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 so you've got this kind of thing that I call it copy, flatter, conform. That's what we do to kind of people, high status people that we feel are, are like us and, and that we want to mimic. Um, you know, we copy everything that they do. And that's why, you know, we might like a singer and we like their music, but we'll also want to dress like them and have our hair like them. Like, we, we just have this automatic, we're going to copy everything that they do, read the same books that they do. And we flatter them, you know, we, we, you know, whether they're in our lives or whether they're celebrities on social media, we'll write, oh, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're fantastic. And, and we, can, we can kind of conform, we, we kind of do the things that they tell us that we should do. And, you know, you mentioned Joseph Henrich. I understand that Joseph has been a previous guest on your podcast. I mean, my book wouldn't exist without his scholarship. I mean, it really is based on his, you know, his ideas. And he's the one that writes about this stuff and and, and is the really real pioneer in this kind of ideas. And he argues that, that this is the kind of a way of almost bribing those people to allow us to be around them, that if we copy them, flatter them and conform to them, that they're going to want to be around us. But really, it's this kind of almost like a sneaky trick the subconscious brain is playing. The only reason we want to be around them is because we want to learn from them and then one day kind of ideally topple them from their throne and become them ourselves. I think you used the example of Nick Kershaw as the person that you used to mimic and learn from. What did you learn from Nick Kershaw, Will? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so, so when I was nine, I just became obsessed with Nick Kershaw. I still like Nick. I've still got a play, Nick Kershaw playlist. Of him as well. But, yeah, it's just, it's just a, he was just sort of a, a, a mid-'80s pop star. And yeah, I just been completely obsessed with him. Like I was a member of the Kershaw Club, Club of the K. <laughs> and I used to wear the badge to school, Kershaw Club. And then one day, like I realized, like I, I saw him on breakfast television and he was kind of, he had his legs crossed in this kind of certain kind of flashy way where his ankle was on his knees. It was a very kind of expansive way of crossing his legs. And I noticed at school the next day that I was doing that too. And it had this kind of moment of kind of like realization. I was like, like why am I sitting with my legs crossed like Nick Kershaw. I, I, I didn't know. And I, I mean, I didn't stop. I, I, I liked it. I liked sitting with my legs crossed like Nick Kershaw. But it, but it was a great example of that kind of copy, flatter, conform thing. It's like it's automatic. Like if, if we see somebody that we relate to, that we feel connected to somehow, that we want to mimic, we, 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 we just start mimicking them without, without, without kind of realizing. And, and I guess that's how kind of, you know, a big part of how fashion works and how how you know pop stars and writers have such huge influence over the kind of the, the culture of kind of fashion yeah i'm wondering though if our obsession with status games and i'm wondering if it actually has heightened in recent years whether it be because of you know dot 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 the internet or other factors i'm wondering if that obsession can actually get a little out of control right so it it actually stops us from prioritizing other really important let's say collective things such as equality or ensuring kids aren't being massacred you know sort of I guess sort of softer values which can get left behind and deprioritize if we're constantly trying to one-up each other yeah I think social media has been like that that's why it's been such a huge thing you, you know and, and that's why it's universal too I mean more than half the population of the world are on social media it's amazing when you think about the amount of people in the world who can't afford a smartphone can't afford the internet or are too young to be on the internet the fact that still over half the population of the world are on it. I mean, it's, it, it's a universally attractive thing because it's a way that we play status games. And, and again, you know, in my own world, I've seen a whole generation of thinkers and writers become completely distracted by the culture wars. And, and I think a lot of that plays out on social media. And it's it's status games. It's people arguing, you know, for my people versus your people and, and getting completely triggered because we're constantly being presented with this kind of parade of people that, that, who are... 
you know, by dint of their political opinions, making us feel low status. So then we have to fight back. And, and, and you see, I think it has, you know, as you say, distracted a whole generation of really smart people, really smart women and men who, who are fighting these kind of ridiculous culture wars on, on, on social media. And, and they, they, you know, they're writing books about the culture wars. And I mean, I've, I, you know, I went through a period of doing that myself. I just, you know, I, I try and avoid all that stuff in media now because it, it's such a distraction and it's so easy to find your kind of trail of thought lost, you know, for days on end because you're, you know, you're being exposed to rivers of people who are, as I say, by dint of their mm. political opinions, making you feel low status it, like it's such a huge shame but it's such a a waste of the kind of brain power of a, of my generation, of a generation. probably the millennial generation too yeah yeah I, I mean i've sort of one of the questions i wanted to ask just to wrap up with is is why did you write this book why does all of this matter why was it important to you to put this thesis on the table for us to, to sort of understand the world through this particular lens but in some ways you I guess you're answering it, you know, it's, it's, it's a way for us to understand why we're getting distracted by certain things, why we're prioritising things a little out of proportion. So maybe instead I'll ask you, you know, how do you think we could actually use your thesis to better understand some of the stuff that's happening in the world today, whether it's the climate crisis, you've mentioned the culture wars, mm. whether it's the AI stuff, the existential stuff, the fragmentation, how could we actually use it to potentially modulate our obsession with status so that we can come back to the table mm. with a more reasoned approach to things? Yeah, I, I imagine that, you know, when you write a book, you get obsessed by all things that you've just written about. So I'm sure you've you've pondered this. Yeah, I, well, so I, I think understanding that what we're doing is playing status games is, you know, making that unconscious reality conscious is, is potentially huge because I, I hope it makes us more empathetic and it, it pulls us out of that story. The, the story that the brain likes to tell is a toxic story in many ways because it's a story of heroes and villains. Like me and mm. my people, we're the heroes. Those people over there are the villains. They're evil. They need to be destroyed. That's how the brain kind of coaxes you and seduces you into playing status games mm. and it's really toxic and i think actually what you know the reality of what's going on is you're seeing competing status groups competing for trade-offs and, and so you know the, the example is the one you know i talked about earlier on with the white working classes you know I, i've been guilty of that i'm a white middle class left-wing dude who for most of my life has looked at white working class people and thought they're probably racist you know like instantly disparaged prejudicial belief about people. If I see a Union Jack or a St. George's flag outside of a house, I just think oh, it's a bunch of racists. Like, like that's the kind of thinking that, that hopefully that, that, that we can get rid of because it's just like, they're just proud to be English. It's just their way of playing a status game. They're just, you know, like it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad people. That's how I hope understanding this stuff and becoming wise to this stuff will make us better people because it will, it will, it will sort of break this terrible story the brain tells of heroes and villains, which is so sort of deeply toxic you know and for me personally it's it, it's affected my life in lots of ways because you know one of the things i write about in the book is that, that if you want to be healthier and happier we need to play multiple status games we, we shouldn't just devote our lives to just one game and as a direct result of writing the book i've, I've started volunteering in my spare time and which is something i never would have considered otherwise and, and that's been a hugely beneficial thing for me it's brought me a lot of pleasure and satisfaction. So, so, so I, I hope there are other things like that that people can pick up from the book. 
Yeah, I sort of started out when I first started reading the book. It was a while ago. It was when the book first came out. And I was a little bit I bristled about the idea that so much of what we're doing could be put down to this wrestling for status. You know, I, did, I didn't like the idea of so much pride dominating the world. Mm. But I take your point, right? It, it gets us to understand some of the complex that stuff that's happening at the moment. And it's becoming more complex. And we're increasingly needing more empathetic ways to understand what we're all doing because we don't want to think of ourselves as a fragmented, highly unjust species. You know, that's not who we know ourselves to be. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, we, we talked about gender earlier on, and I, and I think it's a really important thing. I think you're, you're right. We're kind of at this inflection point at the moment of kind of female empowerment, which is amazing and brilliant for a million reasons. But you're right that that's going to affect men in a way. And I think understand, you know, having that empathy and going, okay, so men are feeling pushed down. The toxic story is good. You deserve it. You're a bunch of misogynist scumbags, right? But but that's just going to make make it even worse. So Band Bash having that empathy and going, okay, because there's a whole class of people now that are feeling that are being made to feel less than and less important, and and you know, so okay, so how can we mitigate this? How how yeah. can we how can we manage the situations so that don't so they don't actually turn into a bunch of misogynist scumbags? Because if you call them a bunch of misogynist scumbags, that's what they're going to become, you know. Because you're humiliating them, and you know, if you if you humiliate people, groups of people, single people, it's always a bad idea. It's a disaster of an idea. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, can I ask one last question? Where are you heading to next in terms of your mm. line of inquiry? Your books almost lead one onto the other. You know, selfie kind of led on to status where where are you at now what are you working on well i'm working on a, the next book is going to be called you are a story and it's really looking at this idea of the fact that we experience our lives as stories and, and actually those stories can be really helpful but they, they can also be really unhelpful and lead to lots of kind of deleterious effects. So it's almost like a quite a literary self-help book. It's, it, it's looking at ways that we can understand our, ourselves as stories and kind of trying to figure out how to live kind of better, happier, more successful lives and, and not let that story trip us up in, in lots of the ways we've been talking about over the last hour. Yeah, wonderful. I look forward to it. Hey, Will, thank you so much for your time. I'll thank let you get you, on Sarah. with the rest of your day. That was a wonderful chat. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate the chat and, and your kind of deep engagement with the ideas. It's, it's fantastic. So thank you very much. As I said from the outset, I was a bit sceptical or annoyed that human behaviour could be summed up through the chase each other up a ladder for status kind of lens. It intuitively feels like, I don't know, a, a letdown. Is, is that what this big endeavour called life amounts to for us? What about the drive to form collectives and to share and love and to experience congruence with nature and each other? Well, as you saw, Will does explain this. First, we set out to belong and connect. And once that sort of safety, that sense of community is established, we then proceed to rise up the ranks. We're all familiar with this sort of push-pull of individualism versus our need to belong to a collective. This is well established. And we talk about it a lot on this podcast. And I guess Will's theory repositions this push-pull as something of a sequence. We belong to the collective and then we individually strive to push our reputation, to win, to dominate, to be, you know, to, to display a bunch of virtues that put us ahead of the rest. 
So what's the benefit of such a slant? Well, I do think it can help us understand a lot of the behaviours around us that baffle us, like why Nazi Germany came to be. Why did the Germans get behind Hitler? but also how to manage or treat the humiliated male violence that is just proliferating in our world and to better manage people in our orbit. Oh, and perhaps find more empathy amidst it all. We are driven to climb this ladder, according to Will. It will, according to Will's research, override other desires, but equally this drive can also be steered to really wonderful things. And I think I get what he's saying there. I invited Will on because I've committed to digging around for helpful ways to comprehend some of the challenges we face in a world that's getting more and more complex and fragmented. Holding an awareness of what drives both good and dangerous people is another wisdom that can help us navigate this this weird and wild and precious time that we're straddling. And let me just find that quote again, the proverb, and I might just leave you with this. Oh, here it is. The child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. I suppose that raises in me the question, how do we get all the children, everyone, feeling embraced and warm? And therein lies, I think, our challenge. Now, always feel free to share suggestions for other renegade thinkers that are shaking things up and and perhaps getting us, you know, finding ways to solve the complexity and the fragmentation in our world. The best place to send through your suggestions is over at sarahwilson.substack.com. Join the community and join the conversation. I'll see you next time. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.